You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. What is the chief end of a human life? Do we look to the catechism and say that the glory of God is the ultimate term? Do enlightenment norms of freedom occupy that governing spot? What if the best lived life seeks excellence and beauty for the sake of being awesome? That seems to be the question that Nick Riggle's recent book on being awesome, A Unified Theory of How Not to Suck, poses. And listeners, you know I love reading that out loud. And the philosophy (laughs) that unfolds is all kinds of fun. And what's even better, his explorations give teachers like me a chance to consider the contingency of all ethical discourse. And that's worth something in itself. So, Nick Riggle, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I usually don't start start with uh, author biographies, but when I heard you on The Philosopher's Zone a while ago, I couldn't help but be fascinated. So tell our listeners just a little bit about your journey from professional sports to the philosophy seminar room. <laughs> yeah, so um, for this sort of unusual upbringing, I guess. Um, I grew up in uh, Santa Rosa, California, which uh, for those of you who don't know is, is north of San Francisco. It's in Sonoma County. Um, north of Marin County. Um, and I grew up there, uh, and uh, when I was about 11, my family moved across town, uh, right across the street from a skate park that was being built, a beautiful cement skate park. And I had just gotten rollerblades for Christmas. And so I wandered over there with my rollerblades and just completely fell in love. And I was never very much into school when I was younger in, in junior high and high school. And I just found myself daydreaming all the time in high school about heading over to the skate park as soon as I could. And eventually I got quite good because I was there all the time. Um, things weren't excellent at home. And, and so, uh, you know, if there was a reason to be outside, I, I, I usually took it. And once I found the skate park, that was, that was my constant reason. Um, and so I was there all the time and I got good and uh, my parents uh, hadn't really gone to college. Or I think both of them spent a little time in, in college, but didn't get degrees or anything. They never really emphasized that in my in my life, and um, and so it wasn't something that was expected of me, and it wasn't something I was thinking. So when I was getting opportunities to travel around the world uh, in, in pro skating, um, I uh, decided to uh, drop out of high school and, and just go for that go for that full time. And so when I was 16, I, I dropped out and I was a pro, uh, I was a pro rollerblader. I uh, was in the X games and traveling the world. I was, I think I was ranked fourth in the world at one point uh, in the competition circuit and, um, became a fairly well-known person, uh, doing that. But during all those travels, I, I found myself reading a ton. I was just obsessed with, uh, finding a new book to, to read, to think about, and I wasn't, I was kind of drawn to lots of things. And they tended to be somewhat philosophical, I recognize now. At the point, at the time, I didn't really realize what I was doing, but I, you know, I was drawn to kind of um, uh, New Age stuff, uh, Eastern religions, um, thinking about God and what my take on, on that whole thing was. And um, I think I ended up reading Plato and Descartes and lots of things poetry and, and I was studying music composition. I just became this kind of uh, passionate autodidact. And, um, 
And yeah, so I I did the I did the pro skater thing for about five years, and by the time I uh, you know faced the decision that a lot of pro athletes face, which is you know obviously can't do this forever. I've got to supplement it with something. Is that going to be something in the skating industry, like being a tour manager or a photographer or uh, starting a company, or am I just going to you know do something else? Uh, and I didn't really have the heart to kind of start a business or something. I, I felt like I wanted to study philosophy more. And um, so that's what I did. We luckily had a great community college in Santa Rosa, the Santa Rosa Junior College. So I spent a, a couple years there and then a year at the Santa Monica College in Southern California. So I was down there playing with a band that I had started with a friend. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, I did really well. Uh, to my surprise, having dropped out of high school, I just felt like it would be impossible for me to succeed in college. And I didn't really have any role models, um, people who had gone to college in my life. So it was really scary, but, um, but I did well. I, I put, I put my whole, whole heart into it and, um, was able to transfer to UC Berkeley and, uh, do quite well there as well. So, um, but yeah, so then I, I went to grad school at NYU and got the PhD and now I'm in San Diego professing. There you go. There you go. Listeners, I just had to have you hear that story. So your book, Nick, addresses a common critique, uh, which I actually heard from evangelical youth ministers before I heard it from stand-up comics, namely that the word awesome should be reserved for a sort of limit term, an utterance that, you know, expresses the sublime and shocks us out of our day-to-day complacency. But, you know, there's people in the world like Nick Riggle who walk around using this word, you know, to describe a kid lip-syncing to Bon Jovi at a basketball game. So <laughs> go ahead and offer the apologia awesome here. <laughs> what makes awesome a helpful term for doing ethics? Yeah, good. Uh, nice nice setup there. Um, so, uh, yeah, so um, I actually got, I got, uh, when the book book came out, you know, a year, a year or so ago, a year and a half ago, um, I... Uh, or maybe it was actually in response to the Philosopher's Zone podcast I did. Um, anyway, uh, a woman uh, in Australia sent me a letter to my to my office at, at University of San Diego, and uh, it was two pages of just complaining, just how dare you use the word awesome this way? It's it's an abomination. This word is a beautiful word. How how dare you water it down the way? And I was like, you know, she's got to read the book because <laughs> I think if you read the book, you see that. Uh, you see that uh, I make I make uh, more of it than than you might expect from sort of common parlance. But um, so uh, so you're right. You know, people use the word awesome uh, to mean something other than inspires awe, which is its original meaning, and uh, it's it's a wonderful thing that we should preserve. I mean, the experience of awe is a is a beautiful experience, and it's an, an important experience for for human beings. I think. But obviously, when you're calling hot dogs and socks awesome, you're not um, saying that you're blown away, you know. In, right. In, this, is, this is not the Kantian sublime. Exactly. Right. And colorful socks. Right. They're, it's, it's a good deal on a hot dog. Awesome. Um, so uh, this got me sort of, you know, uh, the fact that we use this word so much um, as a term of praise uh, and in a way that doesn't mean awe-inspiring, got me interested in it as a philosopher and someone who's interested in, in the language. And so um, I came to think that 
you know, there's kind of two options, right? One is it's really just this blanket, empty term of evaluation. It's just like to say something awesome is awesome, just more or less just to say yay to that, or it's or, I like that, you know, or that's that's good according to, to me or something. That has some degree of goodness in it, you know, something kind of like uh, empty almost. But um, but then if you think that way, then there's kind of puzzle, which is, you know, why did we choose why, why did awesome come to mean that this sort of blanket term of approval? Um, it, it suggests that to me that it suggested to me that there was something more going on uh, with the word awesome than than just yay or, or just I like that. And uh, my suspicions were confirmed by a couple of things. I think there's one just intuition, which is that when I say something's awesome, uh, I mean more than that it's just good or that I like it. I, I, there's something more to it, uh, just intuitively, when you say it's a really awesome person, or, it's a really awesome restaurant, it's a really awesome band. To me, when I express myself that way, it seems like I'm saying more than that I just like the thing. The other thing that I noticed was that um, and this was maybe the more substantive insight about awesome is that it's connected in in our lexicon and also in my in my own idiolect to lots of other terms in a way that suggests that it's not just a um, kind of empty term of approval. So uh, awesome and sucks, I think, are antonyms. Um, that restaurant was awesome. That restaurant sucked. That's, of course, compatible with awesome being the blanket term of approval and sucks being the blanket term of disapproval. But I think there's more conceptual structure there, which I try to show in the book. So um, being down, being game, being chill, these are ways of being awesome. Being a blowhard, an asshole, a self-promoter, a douchebag, these are ways of sucking, which suggests that um, awesome and sucks get at something bigger such that we have more nuanced ways of talking about awesomeness and suckiness. Mm -hmm. well, let's start to explore that structure because you connect awesome to a phenomenon that you call social opening. So, yeah. you know, the first thing that I noticed because I teach, you know, Aristotle is that, right. you know, like Aristotle, but unlike a lot of modern ethics, you begin with the social rather than the individual with your ethics. What difference does that make as we do philosophy? Yeah. So, um, I mean, so it makes a big difference, I think. Um, so, uh, in, in the book, I, I argue that, um, to be awesome is to be good at creating what I call social openings, as you said. And these are, these are little, uh, or not so little, uh, opportunities um, to, uh, for two people to connect. So the example I use in the book, and it's really just a kind of toy example, um, is, uh, when you're out ordering a coffee at a coffee shop, um, normally when you do that, you just enact the, a, a certain social role. Um, just you're, you're the coffee shop customer and the barista is, uh, the, the barista they're, they're enacting their work role and you're enacting your customer role. And when we do that, we tend to act generically. We don't express our individuality. The way you act is more or less the same as the way I act. We enact these, these social roles. But you can create a social opening by breaking out of that role or by riffing on that role or by highlighting it in some way. Uh, and if you do it right, 
the then you create an opportunity for the other person to recognize your expression of individuality for them to break out of their role and then as a result you can connect uh, with one another as individuals rather than just as role occupiers so on the view i develop awesomeness is a relationship between two people it's not a status that an individual has to be awesome is to be good at creating social openings which is to be good at creating that relationship so um to be to be really good as it were in the ethics of awesomeness it's not just uh to be good at cultivating some disposition in yourself it's to be good at paying attention to others not just in your own creation of social openings but also in your own taking up of them in your as i put it in the book in being down or being game or being chill about it mm-hmm. so um so it, the very starting point is is awesomeness is a kind of relationship between more than one person and so uh yeah so it's it's going to be um quite a quite different outlook than the one aristotle had where um you know uh he thought of virtue as as a kind of um individual status as something you cultivate in yourself um, by way of attaining the highest good which he thought of as, as happiness um and uh in the ethics of awesomeness that has a role to play but um you know there's a kind of, there's a sense in which the highest good in the ethics of awesomeness isn't individual happiness it's it's this kind of it's a certain kind of community which i call communities of individuals mm-hmm. well it's interesting <laughs> because aristotle's ethics does presume the polis as a context where uh excellence or arete happens so i mean right. you know i i saw your project at least as analogous to his i mean uh, you seem to be highlighting the difference there. I mean, do you see any kind of analogy between the projects or, or do you see it as much more radically different than I'm seeing it here? No, I think you're, I think you're totally right to see, to see, um, to see analogies between, uh, what I'm, what I'm up to in the book and, and, and what, what Aristotle was up to. Um, not just with, I mean, you know, he, he does obviously situate the, the ethics in terms of, um, in terms of politics, um, mm-hmm. though, uh, I think there are also fairly clear disanalogies. Um, but, but to, but to, to highlight the, the analogies too, I mean, you know, interesting how often Aristotle in the Nicomachean ethics says things like, you know, we think that, or we say that, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and here he's these kind of in, in, in ferreting out these kind of this value system, he's he's appealing to how we think, right? To we as a community, and he's quite clear in the in the ethics. I love that passage where he's like, you know, you can't expect too much from an ethical theory. Like it's just kind of you have to appeal to intuition and kind of massage the points, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're doing a kind of you're doing a kind of conceptual engineering. You're kind of structuring a body of thought or a way of thinking. Um, but in a way that reflects values that people really have and ways of, of valuing that people are really engaged with. And so I think to that extent, we're doing almost exactly the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. And honestly, I mean, that's what stoked my doubts at first about this project, because I thought, OK, this is a very narrowly particular book. I mean, this is a book that makes all of its claims in the vocabulary of sort of late 20th century Southern California youth culture, 
<laughs> and anyone who doesn't have some familiarity with that culture is going to be utterly lost. And, you know, anyone trying to explain your project to someone who's not familiar with that, you know, again, what I think of as Southern California, I realize you're from Northern California, uh, yeah. is going to be, you know, elbow deep in this weird te- terminology, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. you know, what I realized, though, as I kept reading, and this is why I really wanted to have you on the show, is that pretty much describes what I do every time I teach Aristotle's ethics. Yeah. So, I mean, did you plan for readers like me to have this kind of epiphany in the middle of your book, or is that a happy accident? Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, sort of. So, so there was there was a certain design. Um, there was a certain design to the book. Uh, um, I think related to that, which, um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm. I'm aware of, of people's attitudes towards the word awesome. Um, you know, m- some people use it, but I think a lot of people are kind of uh, awesome. You know, you're abusing the word like you, like you mentioned before, mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. or, um, or it's kind of this, you know, superficial assessment, which I think it, you know, often is. Um, but the way I think about awesomeness in the book is, um, it really comes down to, um, a kind of to to be awesome is is to is to be quite open to to cultivate a kind of openness to value, mm-hmm. one that we direct towards ourselves and also to others, so that we can really see uh, the individualities of other people, and we can really cultivate our own individuality and not block ourselves off from exploring the different ways of of seeing the good in the world, um, whether that's in other people or in a creative product that someone has has made. Um, and so I kind of wanted, you know, I, um, I kind of wanted people to, you know, see, be interested in the book, but with a, a somewhat skeptical attitude of kind of like, oh, awesome. This is just some, that's just words that, those are just words that 20 somethings use or skaters use, or those are for the youth, um, mm-hmm. to kind of evoke those, those stereotypes and prejudices and then craft a theory that shows that, you know, actually they get at something really deep and important, um, so, so some, uh, so some, yeah. So I think, um, I I wanted people to have that experience of kind of like a kind of ah, like I see there's more here than I than I sort of there's more of value in in this way of thinking than I than I had given it credit for, which is itself a kind of experience of oh, you know, this is maybe. There's more awesomeness here than I than I might have <laughs> might have first thought. Um, a couple of reviewers called the book autological, which I I thought was was you know generous and um, you know in in a certain respect in the respect I've been describing, you know, I was hoping I was hoping that people would, would get at that. But with uh, with teaching Aristotle, I think you know I mean yeah, it's funny like uh, you know when I teach Aristotle, I have to. Uh, I have to you spend a lot of time, of course, I'm sure you're, you're saying the same thing and explain to your students, you know, Aristotle means something quite specific about by, by like temperance or, by or, con- are you, or eudaimonia for pity's sake. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, totally. Um, very spe- specific, uh, you know, especially when it comes to the stuff about contemplation and, mm-hmm. and so, um, and so, yeah. And so I think, uh, you know, there's a kind of, um, to, to, to get into the, the, the space of the book, the ethos of the book, you know, you have to be open to, 
um, you have to be down, as it were, to to <laughs> sort of to, to take on board these terms, you know, mm-hmm. chill and game and, and and stuff like that. But I hope there's enough there that uh, you know uh, that it's not too alien. I mean, uh, awesome is everywhere, um, and you know, I uh, hey, case in point, uh, it was translated into Turkish. Uh, so oh, I don't kidding. okay. How they did that, but uh, but there's some there's enough there to to kind of you know intrigue. I think um, it's not too too alien. Oh sure. Well, and another uh, you know phenomenon in the history of philosophy that it reminds me of is when you know Hellenistic Jews, largely in in Alexandria, Egypt, pick up mm-hmm. on this you know word that only appears in Homer, agapain, and you know they make it a a core term uh-huh. in their Greek translation of the Bible, the Septuagint. And then it becomes the absolute center of St. Paul's moral philosophy yeah. in the New Testament, right? So, you oh, know, yeah. if I if I had an objection to saying, you know, okay, Nick Riggle is taking this word awesome and he is systematizing it to an extent that it wasn't systematic before, I've got to realize <laughs> my own intellectual tradition does yeah. that all over the place. And like I said, once things. I realized that, I really started having fun with your book. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, spread that word. I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I also detected some some Nietzsche in your identification of aesthetics of awesome and the ethics of awesome. Sure. And beyond that, I mean, you argue that anything that suppresses individuality sucks, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, I read in some ways as a commentary on genealogy of morals. Uh, and yeah, then, of course, I looked at your faculty page and I saw that, you know, aestheticism is something that you're exploring in your future research. So to what extent yeah. is the elevated place of the individual in this philosophy of awesome an echo of the German? And in what ways do you differ from Nietzsche? Yeah, good. Um, so uh, I teach the genealogy of morals. Uh, when I teach, I teach a class called Virtues and Vices where I use this book. And we, mm-hmm. do, we do Aristotle and, and, uh, um, and Hume and Rousseau and Nietzsche and uh, lots of other things. But um, I struggle with, I struggle with Nietzsche. I have to say, I, I, I enjoy reading him, but I struggle with, you know, when I feel like I understand what he's saying, I feel like maybe I disagree. And then, but then there are things he says that I really strongly agree with. Um, and so, uh, I mean, so one, one of the, so one of the, there's a similarity that might seem like an identity, but it's it, it's one that actually shows how how different I think we are mm-hmm. in our thinking. Um, so when I talk about social openings, I talk about you know um, you know abandoning the script and expressing your individuality, and um, which makes it maybe sound like you know you know you have to be this kind of maverick, you have to kind of uh, reject reject the norms so that so that your individuality can can shine, and that sounds kind of Nietzschean, you know. It's like, you know, uh, forget forget slave morality, right? You you have to have the courage to 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 become great, and um, and you have to abandon those norms in order to 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 manifest this greatness. Um, but. Uh, it's it's a kind of superficial similarity, I think, because um, first of all, Nietzsche thinks that not everyone can be great, so greatness ah, okay. is, is rare thing, right? Um, and it's and it's this grand and rare thing. It's this culture shifting and shaping thing. And um, but 
but like Nietzsche, I think that, you know, being awesome is, is something that, um, is required for a flourishing culture. And Nietzsche was deeply concerned with, with cultural flourishing. He thought greatness was the thing we needed to, to, to have a rich and flourishing culture. But again, where we differ is that, um, I think everyone can cultivate awesomeness in themselves. I think they, everyone can kind of get better at creating social openings and responding to them well. And, um, and that real cultural flourishing from the perspective of the ethics of awesomeness involves kind of everyone being on board with this, with this project. Mm. But, uh, that leads to kind of another contrast between my view and, and what I take Nietzsche's view to be, which is that uh, I think that um, we need uh, we need these sort of deep and good cultural norms to, to sort of structure the sort of baseline of our society, sort of rational cultural norms, norms of essentially respect um, that allow us to get along with our daily lives in a sort of fluid, respectful, peaceful, good way. Um, and it's those norms that we, that we kind of, you know, riff on or break out of, um, to express our individuality, but we need those norms, uh, for, uh, for awesomeness to really, to really flourish. And so the, the person I really identify with, uh, in, in the history of philosophy is, is actually Schiller in the letters on the aesthetic education of man. Um, I take I take his view there. I read him as very very similar in a way to um, to 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 my view. Um, maybe you know I think my view has the the benefit of 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 being you know after the 20th century basically where so much culturally happened. Um, but uh, you know I quote I quote Schiller at the very beginning uh, where he says. Um, a man in play is most fully a man and one is only fully a man when, when they play, when one plays. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I think what he has in mind there is that, you know, it's only if you have this capacity to, to play as he, as he calls it, um, that you realize your full humanity. Um, and if you don't have that capacity, you, you can't tap into the way Schiller puts it, you can't tap into these, these forms of freedom that you have access to that you can cultivate. And you're not fully free unless you, unless you have this ability to, to play. Um, and it's only when we play that we realize this, 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 uh, this, uh, this high, this highest good that, uh, that we have available to us as free, as free beings. So, um, anyway, maybe that's of interest to you, but, uh, mm -hmm. I, oh, very interesting. Yes. For Nietzsche. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, I want to turn back to the the structure of the book. I mean, your fourth chapter is a taxonomy of sorts, uh, a catalog of ways that people suck. Uh, as you compiled these, I mean, I'm I'm curious about your process. Were your main sources your own experiences, stock characters in cinema or television yeah. scripts, or some other storehouse of suckers? <laughs> yeah, um, it was so much fun. Uh... Uh, working out the taxonomy, I, I, work, I also worked with a graphic designer to to um, to come up with those little icons that you see in the in the in the diagram, which was just a ton of fun. And it, it always delighted me that you know a philosophy project could be could be so much fun to to play around with. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
and and part of the fun was was you know watching TV shows and talking to friends and um, you know it, I I think one of the greatest things about writing the book is that um, it was one of these things where uh, if I was at a party or out at a bar or, uh, you know having dinner with friends or whatever um, I could be like hey I'm working on this book it's about it's about being awesome and, and suckiness and and people would just immediately have like ten ideas for for it and. We, you know, it always was a really fun thing to talk about. So I got, I got a bunch of great advice from friends like, oh, you got to watch this TV show or, oh, this, you know, this thing happened to me and, and, uh, it really sucked. And, and then I could kind of think about, you know, oh, could I use that in the book or does that actually align with my view or, um, and so, yeah, just kind of, as I was writing the book over a couple of years, just kind of paying attention to how people were using the words, um, you know, kind of like following leads on, on movies and TV shows and uh, songs and commercials and all kinds of things. Um, yeah. And if some of that shows up in the chapter, I, I think, you know, I quote a couple TV shows. Like, Oh yeah, absolutely. That's why I was wondering <laughs> if that was the main source or, yeah, but it sounds like a pretty eclectic, uh, you know, I would say group of, <laughs> of stories. Yeah. It's really eclectic. Yeah. And, and uh, kind of from every angle, I think, uh, which was, one of the pleasures of writing the book. Mm-hmm. Well then, you know, after your catalog of people who suck, then come ways to be awesome. And I'll confess that I never imagined these subtle, subtle distinctions between being down, being game, rocking and ruling. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to pose the Nietzschean question. Now, are you yeah. imposing order on an inherently unruly pop lexicon here? Or do you see these kinds of awesomeness arising reliably? Let's say, in the ways that people talk about awesome. Yeah. So, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's both really. I mean, so, um, you know, I think that, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of revealing a lot of structure. Like I, I really think that awesome and sucks are antonyms in, in our, in our lexicon in the kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. The on the contemporary English, American English tongue. Um, and so, but, you know, people might not have really noticed that, um, in quite, in quite the way that I point out in the book. Um, and I think that, I think that the way we use down and game, I think that, you know, I think that, um, what I'm doing in, 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 in the taxonomy is kind of re- revealing the structure that's there in, in the meanings of the terms. Um, you know, uh, other, other parts of the, of the taxonomy, I think, uh, are a little more creative They're, but they're kind of, they're kind of creative proposals, right? They're not just arbitrary. It's, it's saying, look, we also use this term. We kind of use it in this way. Like maybe that's the way we should really use it. Um, so there's a kind of a conceptual engineering point, a kind of proposal of, you know, maybe this is the way we should think about this term, not just as a one-off term of praise or criticism, but is connected to this bigger structure of thinking about, how we express our individuality in in in, um, in today's culture and and um, how we encourage and dis- discourage certain ways of interacting, given that we have this common goal of creating these communities of individuals. Mm-hmm. I, I see some Wittgenstein in here. I mean, is that an influence here? I mean, you know, his project in philosophical investigations seems to be to locate the work that words do in these systems of language games i mean is that is that something like what you're doing here 
Yeah, for sure. There's, you know, it's a kind of a kind of ordinary language exercise. Um, uh, you know, uh, paying paying close attention to how how words really are used, um, and trying to make explicit uh, those uses in a way that's illuminating to to people. You know, I'm a philosopher. I I can do this, right? It's kind of my job. So, <laughs> um, hopefully, it's of some use to people who already have an interest in thinking these ways and using these terms and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, after these, you know, catalogs of suckers and the awesome, I really didn't expect the sudden turn to socio- sociological analysis. Oh, but, yeah. but this was really one of my favorite parts of the book. You make some really strong points Thank about you, yeah. the situation of awesome in the 21st century and specifically in the context of shifting norms and institutions. You know, this is a context that, you know, a lot of the writers that I spend the most time with or are dealing with this book takes it in a direction that, you know, I really haven't read before. So what kinds of historical contingencies fall into place to give rise to awesome as a new ethical aspiration? Yeah, good. I mean, so after I, after I thought about what I, you know, what I think awesomeness is and what it is to, try and be awesome and be down and so on. It struck me that, you know, this is like a new, this is a fairly new kind of evaluative ethical system. Um, it's hard to imagine something like this being you know, resonating with us even, uh, you know, 60 years ago, I think, or, or maybe longer. Uh, um, and one of the points I make in favor of this thought is that, you know, it's a it's a shocking thought, I think, that when you realize that the high five, which I think of as a kind of great symbol of, of awesomeness, um, was invented in the mid 70s. It's mm-hmm. like this this uh, this just gesture that we take for granted, like we think of it as venerable as, as maybe the handshake. <laughs> Not quite, maybe, but uh, this fixture of, of expressive culture is is quite new. Um, and, uh, and so it got me thinking, you know, what's the origin of, of this, you know, wh- where did this come from and why, you know, why do we care about it so much now? And, and should we, I mean, it is a real hard question about whether like as a culture, we should be promoting this, um, this sort of aesthetics and ethics of individuality of cultivating this in ourselves and of creating communities where it's it's seen and recognized and appreciated and and encouraged in various ways mm-hmm. and so i think of it as as arising from uh our our increasingly progressive and diverse culture where um we have to live with one another we want to live with one another where um we're not just this homogeneity right we're actually a diverse culture living with one another and trying to see one another for who each other is. Um, and I think this emerged, you know, with, uh, I think, I think the emphasis on this culturally emerged with, uh, you know, the civil rights movement, um, uh, progress in, uh, from, from, uh, music and jazz culture in the thirties and forties. Um, the emergence of coolness, uh, as a kind of cultural ideal, and then the way this all played into the revolutions, cultural revolutions of the 60s, um, I think a lot of these, one of the effects of these movements is 
is to place a cultural emphasis on being yourself, you know, being who you want to be, uh, being the individual or creating an individuality for yourself. I mean, look what we get after the 60s. Uh, you know, it's not just Elvis, you know, copying sort of black music culture. <laughs> it's like David Bowie and like, um, uh, gosh, you know, a Tribe Called Quest. And uh, I mean, you can just think of Madonna, like the the. I'm, I'm, I, my mind's focused on music right now, apparently, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you can think of political leaders, you can think of um, movie stars, you can think of professors, intellectuals, you know, it's kind of, you can kind of create yourself in, in, in a way, um, uh, create your individuality, express your individuality in a way that I think you couldn't before. It was just impossible. And so, but that, that, um, that creates a kind of problem, which is, you know, if you're too much of an individual, no one's going to like understand what you're up to. Um, you're going to be, you know, kind of alienating. And, but if, again, if you're too deferential, then you're not doing this thing that culture has apparently said is important or figured out is important. It's kind of, um, being yourself, realizing your, um, realizing your full individuality. Mm-hmm. So well, I, I want to dwell on, I mean, one of the terms that you just dropped is cool. And yeah. I, again, one of, one of the interesting things this book does is sets awesome and cool as sort of uh, counter forces culturally since Vietnam. Uh, yeah. You know, there cool is this detached irony, whereas awesomeness uh, is more of an abandon. It's more of a creative individuality. Now, the way I read your book I sensed a, a sort of superiority of awesome over cool here. Am mm-hmm. I overreading you or, or is that something that's in your argument? Yeah, no, uh, it was a sort of surprise consequence that I found once I had worked out what awesomeness is. Um, uh, cause you might, you might've thought, Oh, awesome. Cool. Like they're just kind of, you know, they're in the same family or something. Right. And if you regard each of them as simply a, a placeholder for approval, you know, in sort of some sort of right. emotivist sense, you yeah. know, you, you can say excellent or great or awesome or cool. And they're all basically synonymous and yeah. you might expect all of them to come out of Bill and Ted. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you're being more precise here. I mean, yeah. I, and I think you're right that awesome and cool are, you know, forces that are opposing each other in some way. Yeah. So there's, so, so the first point I'll, I'll make, I'll make three, three points. I think first is that, you know, Cool just has meant so many different things over the years. Um, and one one sense of cool that I talk about in the book is the kind of James Dean cool, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I think of that, you know, I, I love the, um, I love one of the posters for Rebel Without a Cause said something like, you know, um, the, the, the bad kid from a good family, right? Um, or, uh, or Marlon Brando's character, uh, you know, who's, who's, who responds to, uh, you know, Hey, what, Hey Johnny, what are you rebelling against? And he says, what do you got? Right. So mm-hmm. it doesn't, right. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm against it. Um, but not only am I against it, like I'm the one at the party acting like the coolest thing you could do is to be against it just for no reason. Like mm-hmm. just tie. Um, and that this is hipster as a term of abuse. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, if that's, if that's, um, if that's the way you'd use hipster, I think it's similar in a kind of like, if it's just this detached, uh, 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 opposition for its own sake, then I think that that definitely sucks. Um, but, 
there's a um, one of the things that's got me interested in was you know where did where did cool come from what's, what's its origin sure and I found that um, the original cool which was which was adopted by people like um, you know by Hollywood and and figures like James Dean and Marlon Brando in the 50s and the Beat Generation and so on. Um, it was adopted and, and distorted by by those people, and the original cool was was invented by the the legendary jazz saxophonist Lester Young, who um, who created cool style as a kind of personal and artistic style to uh, combat the racist norms that he was um, he was subject to as a black performer in the 30s and 40s, and he in, invented coolness in part as a way to get people's minds off the racial relations during a performance and get them to focus on the music mm -hmm. uh, so as to bolster and create a richer community of, of performers and, and of course also of audience. Right. I mean, that makes sense because, you know, uh, cool jazz as a subset of jazz music is a very cerebral kind of jazz. I mean, it takes right. real attention to listen yeah. to cool jazz. Yeah. So and so coolness was in contrast to hotness, right? The 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 demand from the white audience was always get hot, get hot, get hot, be loud, be in my face, make me dance. Coolness was a response to that to say, um, you know what? Like we're inventing like the most momentous art form in the last, you know, couple hundred years, maybe. Like uh you should listen to this. And so, you know. He would solo in a weird way to, to get your attention and he would mm -hmm. turn his saxophone to 45 degree angle, wear the sunglasses on stage, play in this mellow, textured way that you had to listen to. And once you did, I mean, you heard it like it was it was impressive. Um, he was, as, as I mentioned, you know, probably the greatest jazz saxophonist ever, ever to live, um, certainly regarded as, as such by many people. And that was coolness. Um, Coolness was was a was an awesome style uh, invented to create awesomeness, but then it quickly changed in all these ways. You know, you got the James Dean cool thing happening shortly after, and then you've got um, in the '80s maybe something like you know, if you were cool, you were you were in the know. You know, you kind of you weren't like into consuming mainstream culture. You kind of knew the stuff that was was on the outskirts of culture. Um, mm -hmm. And then in the 90s, you know, there was cool hunting and, uh, you know, quite the opposite, right? It's about finding the thing that would become mainstream. Um, mm -hmm. So so cool's, cool's had quite a wild ride. But I think, you know, as I say in the book, um, awesome is the rightful heir of the original cool. Okay. All right. All right. The, the original cool is, is, in, is indeed in the same family with, with awesome, which might explain some of our intuitions. Mm-hmm. Well, your book closes with a call for readers to aspire to awesomeness, as a good book of ethics should. Uh, and here, because, you know, again, I tend to find my favorite writers in new books that I like, <laughs> I thought that once again I could hear some Wittgenstein going on, yeah. and namely his notion of going on as the mark of competence in a form of life. Uh, so what does it look like to create awesomeness, to go on rather than to seek the status of awesome? Oh, good. Yeah. So, right. At the end, I make this point that, like, you know, don't be so concerned with, like, being awesome. Um, be concerned with creating awesomeness. And the point there is, um, you know, so so 
a concern with being awesome is actually kind of a sucky concern or, or it's a, it could become a sucky concern. Um, if it's too, if it's too focused on, on yourself and it's about, it's about getting people to recognize me and who I am. I'm this awesome thing. Um, and so I'm going to walk into the you know room and, and, uh, you know, be loud. And so that threatens to be kind of thunder stealing or, or braggarty or blowhardy or, you know, these, these worries about self-promoting. But to be concerned with awesomeness is to be concerned not with yourself, but again, with a relation. Awesomeness is a relation between someone who's created a social opening and someone who's taken it up. And so to be worried, to be concerned or, or to care about awesomeness, it's not just to care about being awesome or creating social openings. It's to care about either creating social openings or being down or game or chill in these ways that are responsive to, to social openings. It's, to someone who sees it attentive to those to those opportunities so um so yeah it's 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 the difference between a concern for oneself and a, and a concern for community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well i want to look big picture for a moment and situate this in the the history of philosophy for a moment uh mm. is this the latest and and frankly the most fun iteration of aristotle's tradition of virtue ethics uh which tend to emerge in moments of cultural upheaval right after the peloponnesian war uh-huh. Or, you know, in the midst of, you know, the uh, Crusades, in the, in the case of Thomas Aquinas. Good, or yeah. does this book stand mainly as a text that begins a tradition, as Aristotle's did, so that neo-regalians might emerge <laughs> in future generations? Or would you prefer that readers take on the ethical project in terms of their own contingent particular demographics, perhaps crafting ethics rooted in Pakistani immigrant culture, or Turkish culture that we were just talking about, or computer hacker culture, yeah. or comic book convention culture. Where where does this book sit yeah. in that historical narrative? Oh well, I mean, time will tell. But I, uh, you know, I think so. So, with respect to your your second option there, I mean, I I think the book is already in a tradition of using philosophy to make sense of things that might seem, I don't know, like unimportant or just kind of part of everyday life in a way that could be ignored maybe but that uh but these books show how how great philosophy can be when when it pays attention to things like that so harry frankfurt's got this great little essay and book on called on bullshit which i'm sure you know Mm -hmm. Um, and uh my bud aaron james uh another great philosopher great writer um has a book called assholes a theory Mm-hmm. And um, so he's doing kind of the same thing of like, you know, here we use this term bullshit or asshole or whatever. And, you know, what does that mean? And and can we use philosophy to kind of be more responsible about about what we mean and sort of to say say something explicit about it and to think through whether, you know, that's what we should mean or whether we should be thinking and talking in these ways. And um, so I think there's a lot more philosophy to be done along these lines. Um, Aaron's working on a new actually two new books and I've got, I've got something coming um, kind of in the works. And, and so I think I'd be excited to see philosophers do this more because I think they're the ones who are really good at it and it's illuminating. It's, it's exciting uh, to see philosophy attend to culture in this way. I mean, if you think about it, it's what Socrates was doing. You know, he'd go out into the town square and say, Oh, you're going to prosecute your dad for impiety. Um, So what's piety? Like, here's this term you're using. Like, mm-hmm. you think you know what it means? Like, let's figure it out. 
you know, of course he had his own style as so he'd never really figure it out. And everyone got a headache and <laughs> they killed him for it. And, um, but I think, you know, there's, we could be more optimistic about it. You know, we don't all have to end in this kind of a poor, a state. We can kind of end up in, in, in something that's more illuminating and exciting and fun. Um, but then, you know, uh, I have to say, I mean, I, I think that, um, philosophers tend to ignore aesthetics and I think that that's a huge mistake. And so I would, I would hope that a book like this could maybe go, you know, some ways down the path of, of recovering, um, the importance of aesthetics, not just to think about fine art, but to think about its cultural, political, and social dimension. And we see in this book, I think that, um, when you attend to aesthetic phenomena, the kind of playfulness, the creativity, the expression, um, we see how, and of course the way that cultural artifacts and art, artworks um, too can play a role in, in these things. Um, you know, uh, I think we can hopefully start to recover some of the, the sense that, that aesthetics is a, as important to look at and understand um, as, as ethics uh, or, or, or as political philosophy um, when it comes to understanding human life and the highest good and, and uh, you know, really what we should be doing with our lives. Um, so if, if anyone wants to be a new regalian in that sense, um, <laughs> I'm all about it. I'm down. Very good. Very good. Well, I want to speak in behalf of our, our skeptical listeners. One criticism that some of our listeners might level at your project is that when it comes to certain public policy questions, Rather than arguing that they stand as unjust, your dismissal of them as sucky gives the impression that you don't even have time to entertain any disagreement with the kind of uh, what I might call cultural libertarianism. Mm. So I'll try to put this briefly. Do traditionalists and conservatives always suck, or do you see room for awesomeness within traditions that seek to remain traditional? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. Um, I, I I definitely would not make the claim that um, conservatives always suck. Um, I think it, it's going to depend. I, I sort of worry. I think there might be a, a tendency to suckiness. Um, but I don't want to overplay it because I, I don't think that that's a unique feature of, of the conservative state of mind. Because I think that someone who's overly kind of effusive and expressive and, and out there um, maybe – Maybe someone who's very much not conservative in their in their personal personal lives, they could also suck by being, you know, instead of underperforming, they they fall under the category of kind of overperforming, um, mm. overperforming suckiness. the The question I would have for any kind of conservative policy proposal or conservative attitude um, is, you know, uh, is it is that policy genuinely open to the different forms of value that exist, the different forms of individuality and person creation and, 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 and um, ways of living life, um, ones that are actually genuinely valuable, not, not ones that are just, you know, we're worried about them because they're, they're different or something. They're, there's something there that's worthy of, of, of life, of cultivation. Um, so I, I, would, I would worry a little bit about that. But, uh, you know, I think that, the other thing to emphasize perhaps is that, um, you know, it's there certain human traditions I think can be, can be quite awesome. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's naive to think that, um, 
the only way we can create awesomeness is if everything's always new all the time, you know, um, uh, that can be disorienting and, 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 and scary in ways that suck. But I think that, um, you know, creating certain traditions or, or finding the meaning in certain traditions, um, can be, can be quite, quite awesome, can create these opportunities for the mutual appreciation of individuality. So, but yeah, I think, I think the short answer is just, um, you know, I'd have to, I'd have to look at the the policy or look at the proposal and you know, mm-hmm. what's, what's happening with this thing is, is this a thing to preserve because, uh, you know, for the sake of preservation, I, I find almost no value in that. Um, but is, is there something deeper there where it, where it can help us to realize this cultural ideal that, um, that we seem to, that, that we think is so, so great and so important. Very good. Yeah. Well, Nick, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. Uh, what awesome things do you want our listeners thinking about aesthetics, ethics, or anything else as we head for the door? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know. I mean, what, one thing that I thought, one thing that I thought might be interesting to bring up, um, is, uh, is to think, I mean, I want, I kind of wonder if you have any thoughts about this, um, to think about, uh, the connection between awesomeness, the relation that I've been talking about and, and, uh, sort of Christian love, you know, what does it look like to compare these two things? Um, I mean, I, I don't use the word love in the book much, but I think, uh, you know, caring about the cultivation of one's own individuality in a way that uh, feeds into and inspires other people's creation of their individuality in a way that you know can create communities of appreciative people. Um, it's, it's a lot like a certain kind of love, but I wonder, you know, is that, is there room for that in in, uh, in, a, in a Christian tradition, or does it always have to be a kind of just love, a blanket sort of love for the person, um, or for humanity in general, or, or what have you? Well, it's interesting, and, and listeners, you know, usually, usually I don't jump in once I've said you have the last word, but he invited me, so I'm going to jump in. Um, I, I think this is interesting because you know this is that Jewish recovery of that Homeric agape, right? And, you know, in that very brief episode in the Odyssey where that word appears, uh, it is Athena's special regard and elevation of Telemachus that that gets that word. And Mm. I think it's fascinating historically that that's the word that those Hellenistic Jews in Alexandria picked up on to describe Ahav, you know, the Hebrew notion of God's, you know, benevolence and, you know, uh, beneficence and, you know, good works towards Israel. So yeah. I, I think that definitely, I mean, you know, at the very least, you can see some historical analogies between those two terms. I mean, you know, when we take a look at uh, agape, uh, it, it's not a word that came out of nowhere, but it's pretty darn close. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's not a coincidence because, you know, the Jewish tradition and, you know, the, the, the Christian tradition as its heir, they are telling a story of a God that relates to humanity in a way that, you know, as far as they can tell, and I think they might be right, is unprecedented in the, in the God stories around them, right? You know, these are not Egyptian gods. These are not Babylonian gods that are very Mm -hmm. self-regarding, but this is an other directed ultimate being. 
So, yeah, right. I mean, I, I think there's definitely something to that. Yeah, good. Well, then, you know, maybe what we have here is, uh, you know, the sort of post-60s realization of of, uh, of agape or something, or, or something similar. <laughs> I, I can run with that. I can run with that. <laughs> well, Nick cool. Riggle, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in with us. The book is On Being Awesome from Penguin Books. Uh, the Christian, Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>